Today on Categorical Imperatives, I want to talk about why, in the immortal words of Jay-Z, I've got 230 problems, but a section ain't one. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. If you are new to the program, I do especially want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we are going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. And just real quick, because I am a filthy, no-good capitalist, I want to remind you guys that if you dig what I do here and you want to help play an active role, in helping me develop the channel to reach more people and to ultimately be able to have an even richer discussion with you all about law and philosophy, I would greatly appreciate your help, uh, especially on my brand new Patreon page, where for as little as two bucks a month, you get all kinds of extra goodies uh, from a show notes page to a guaranteed topic request and more. Now, if you are able and willing, I would be grateful for your support. And if you are not in a place to do that right now, that's all right. Uh, I just, I still appreciate you coming by and spending some time here with me today all the same. And that goes for whether you are a brand new viewer or a long time subscriber. All right. Stop pouring myself out and get to the topic for today, huh? So I want to start by asking you a couple questions. Have you heard of Section 230? Do you feel you have a reasonable understanding about what this provision of the law sets out, what its meaning and purpose is? And do you have an opinion about whether or not we should change or repeal Section 230? Well, if you answered yes to at least two of those three questions and you are anyone except Senator Ron Wyden, you're probably wrong. Now, just kind of a mea culpa here right at the beginning, I'm kind of surprised that I had to make this video uh, because I was recently talking with someone about this topic of Section 230, and I said, wait, I have done a podcast episode on that, uh, and I had an article published about that. Why don't uh, I go pull those up for you, good sir, and, and you can look at those because they should be very helpful, and I couldn't find them, and I was very confused. Why? Uh, because I knew I had talked about this and written about this. Uh, and I quickly realized that I had spoken about it in a video whose real central premise was Donald Trump's incoherent executive order last year to regulate social media uh, that was really kind of a workaround of Section 230. In other words, I only discussed this law after framing it in a political narrative, specifically of Trump's executive order. But the meaning of Section 230 is coming under greater assault recently uh, because the only way any side is viewing this law is exclusively, exclusively through a political lens of one kind or another, like mine, where I was seeing it through the lens of Trump's executive order. Uh, but, and this is happening everywhere. This happens on the left and right. And uh, this ha is happening to a degree that should be troubling for just about anyone paying attention. So really, I guess I want to start out by uh, giving a few examples of uh, how this political framing is working on both the left and the right. 
So now that Trump is out of office, the one guy who has been faithfully carrying on Trump's uh, legacy of ignorant indignation uh, is this douchebag, Josh Hawley, whose picture I may or may not have modified slightly to express his true nature as just about the most Karen motherfucker I've ever seen in my life. And is, is it just me or does anyone else think that this is the guy who starts and ends his day every day in prayer, asking God to make him enough of a man to actually be able to throw a punch? Because even Josh Hawley recognizes that Josh Hawley deserves to get his ass kicked and he just wishes he was man enough to be the one to do it. Let me know down in the comment section uh, where you stand on that. But when it comes to Holly and 230, uh, I want to focus on a bill that he submitted, uh, I, I think around 2018. It was Senate Bill 1914, the, end, the Ending Support for Internet Censorship Act. And in that bill, he said the following. With Section 230, tech companies get a sweetheart deal that no other industry enjoys, a complete exemption from traditional publisher liability in exchange, for providing a forum free from political censorship. Uh, Holly goes on to say uh, more. And anyways, really, uh, since then, uh, this notion uh, that Section 230 has always been some kind of an implicit deal or that there is any notion that it requires platforms to take a neutral political stance has really become the main talking point uh, among the political right. And from people who should really know better, too. I mean, Josh Hawley, before serving in the Senate, was the uh, the AG for the state of Missouri. Uh, another person who we see championing this stupid idea is Ted Cruz. Uh, and Ted Cruz is, uh, whatever you think of him as a person or a politician, he was a very accomplished lawyer. Um, and, and in fact, he had been under serious consideration by President Trump uh, to the Supreme Court, uh, I, I believe, in the when he eventually ended up giving the job to Kavanaugh. Um, but, and not that I think Ted Cruz would have been good uh, for the Supreme Court, but he was qualified enough to be there. So these are smart people who should know the law and uh, either don't or they're very, very good at hiding what it actually is. Now, like I said, it isn't just the right doing this. I, I'm not just picking on one side or the other here. So this is also something that we see on the left. And they argue that Section 230 is shielding abusive content that affects marginalized groups and proliferates fake news. And one notable example of this is Joe, are your parents home Biden? Hey there, sweetie. How old are you? 16. 18? You're first. Mom! I like where this is going. Giggity, giggity, giggity. Now, right here, we have Joe Biden pictured engaging in one of his favorite pastimes. He is hunting for young girls at his political rallies. As you can see, he spotted a little girl uh, whom he is pointing at so that his Secret Service agent can stop her from trying to make a clean getaway. Uh, he is clearly removing his mask so he can get up in there and give her hair a proper sniffing. And judging by that grin on his face, I would say that he is very excited. Which is also why I had to crop this picture from the waist up, because creepy Uncle Joe was already entertaining a raging semi. However, when it comes to Section 230, uh, 
this is what Joe Biden has to say about this. Uh, the Times can't write something you know to be false and be exempt from being sued, but he can. The idea it, that it's a tech company is that Section 230 should be revoked, immediately should be revoked, number one, for Zuckerberg and other platforms, and it should be revoked. It should be revoked because it is not merely an internet company. It is propagating falsehoods they know to be false, and we should be setting standards not unlike the Europeans are doing relative to privacy. You guys still have editors. I'm sitting here with them. Not a joke. This is no editorial. There is no editorial impact on Facebook. None. None whatsoever. It's irresponsible. It's totally irresponsible. Well, clearly, President Biden hasn't read the New York Times recently because that is pretty much all they do. Um, although that's understandable given how awful the New York Times is. I'm much more surprised when I find someone who does read them nowadays. But anyways, uh, so the problem with both of these two statements is that they are both objectively untrue. Yet, if you are discussing Section 230, it's almost certain that you are talking about it framed through one of either of those two narratives. And if you are doing that, I'm sorry to say you really don't understand Section 230, which I don't say to be judgmental. This is why I started the video talking about how last year I made the video. I thought it was about Section 230. It was really about Trump's executive order. So this, I'm not uh, trying to blame other people here. Um, and that's also why I think it's important we consider these two arguments side by side the way I just did it, because the fact is that the talking points for both parties who want the same repeal, uh, it, it's interesting because they both seem to believe they have, they have opposite assumptions about what the bill does and what repealing it would do. Uh, that, if that was a little confusing, let me explain. So the Republicans will say that uh, Section 230 allows censorship and that repealing it would make social media a politically neutral censorship-free experience, while Democrats think the law doesn't censor nearly enough speech and it makes room for fake news and hate speech run amok and it should be repealed so that the Democrats can begin demanding that these sites censor all the content that the government wants them to. You would think it would have been enough when they censored a sitting president of the United States, but I guess not. And um, as I'm sure it's already very clear by, by my tone uh, here already, uh, if you're not familiar with this, is uh, what, there is neither side on this issue is, is there's no right or wrong here. Both sides completely, completely, horribly mischaracterize what this law says in a way that is clearly meant to be politically expedient, but legally unintelligible. Now, this, this also exemplifies an interesting concept that uh, I first learned of from a legal scholar named Josh Blackman. I don't know if this is his idea originally or not, but what he refers to as bootleggers and Baptists. And this has to do with the idea that often different groups of people uh, have very different motivations, but they both want the same thing. So bootleggers and Baptists goes back, obviously, to the uh, 18th Amendment uh, and the Volstead Act and Prohibition. And this was something that bootleggers were in favor of because they knew that they were, if alcohol was illegal, they could make an absolute fucking killing on it. And Baptists thought it was a good idea because they had this belief that if we could just get rid of demon rum, then the entire nation would, I, I don't know, have some kind of big come to Jesus moment 
you know, men would stop beating their wives, people would stop sending children to work in mines, and the world would be a beautiful place or some shit. I don't know what they were thinking. Um, so anyways, yeah, that's, that's bootleggers and Baptists, and that's what we have here with 230 and Republicans and Democrats. And that is why uh, today's video should really be considered Section 230 and its legal rather than its political meaning. Now, I do also, if you're interested, I have a link down in the description to the article from Josh Blackman that I talked about. Now, I don't think uh, he wasn't talking about it in relation to Section 230, but the whole idea of bootleggers and Baptists is still a really interesting concept. So I'll have the article that I got that from down there if you want to read it, and I suggest you do. So we are going to do a straight up old school textualist analysis of this law. But before we read through the text of uh, Section 230 itself, I think it is prudent that we define several key terms uh, and their particular meaning in this law. Now, the first term is Good Samaritan. Now, Good Samaritan is a common law legal term that is derived from tort law's Good Samaritan, Samaritan doctrine. And this is a legal principle that protects a person who voluntarily comes to the aid of an injured or ill stranger from being sued for contributory negligence as long as the volunteer aid giver, aka the Good Samaritan, acted with reasonable care. Next, Interactive Computer Service. Now, this comes from right from the law itself, actually, 47 U.S.C. Section 230, subsection F2. And this term is defined as meaning any information service system or access software provider uh, that provides or enables computer access by multiple users to a computer server, ex uh, including specifically a service or system that provides access to the Internet and such information operated uh, or services offered by libraries or educational institutions. And finally, information content provider, uh, which is also defined uh, within Section 230, specifically 47 USC, Section 230 of Section F3. And this is defined as meaning any person or entity that is responsible in whole or in part for the creation or development of information provided through the internet or any other interactive computer service. All right. Well, now that we have that out of the way, let's move on to 230 itself. Now, this here, this is uh, 43 USC section 230 subsection C, and this is the relative part uh, that what is relative to uh, the internet and to the idea of whether uh, social media are platforms or if they're common carriers or publishers or, or whatever. And so section 230 has two uh, distinct parts, C30 subsection 1 and C30 subsection C2. And so we are going to go over those right now. So as you can see, the law is, is named the Protection for Private Blocking and Screening of Offensive Material. Subsection C deals with protection for good Samaritan blocking and screening of offensive material. And so section C1, treatment or, uh, of publisher or speaker, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher 
or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And then the second part is uh, Section 62. This has to do with civil liability in regards to Section 230. And it says that no provider or user of an information content provider shall be held liable on account of either A, any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. Or, uh, also, uh, any action taken to enable or make available to information content providers or others the technical means to restrict access to materials described in paragraph 1. So, um, I, at this point here, now that we know what the law says itself, um, I want to, I, I, I just put together some basic background about what uh, this means uh, in, in light of how it was enacted. And so, Section 230, uh, as you can kind of glean from the law there that we just read, uh, though I, I understand that can be confusing for people uh, not used to reading statutes, but um, it. Basically, it makes internet platforms and other internet speakers immune from liability for material posted by others. And just a few examples of what that means. Now, I am immune from liability for anything that you animals say down in my comment section. A newspaper is immune from liability for comments made about it or, or comments made in it uh, by others. Uh, Yelp and similar sites are immune from liability for business reviews that a user may post. Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube are immune from liability for what their users post. And Google is generally immune from liability for its search engine results. And that is true whether or not the internet platform or speaker chooses to block or remove certain third-party materials. If I wanted to delete a comment left on one of my videos, uh, I, I, if it contains something so like such a vulgar personal insult about someone, I, I, I don't know under what circumstance I would even play speech police like that. But it, let's say in theory, if I did, I would not lose my protection uh, as someone who is putting out a podcast uh, uh, on YouTube because I decided to take a comment down. Uh, similarly, Yelp uh, doesn't lose its protection because it may sometimes delete a comment that appears to have come from a non-customer. Uh, and other entities likewise are allowed to engage in such selection and still retain immunity. Section 230 has recently become controversial. Uh, it, has, it, it wasn't, though, for quite a long time. And so... Uh, I want to, from here, step back a little bit uh, from the current debate and find out where this law fits within the traditions of American law, and as you'll be finding out, specifically within American libel law. Now, historically, American law has divided uh, operators of communication systems into three categories. 
first is publishers uh, such as newspapers, magazines, and broadcast stations, which themselves print or broadcast materials submitted by others or by their own employees. Then there are distributors. This is things such as bookstores, newsstands, and libraries, which distribute copies that have been printed by others. And the third is a platform, uh, such as a telephone company, uh, or a city on whose sidewalks people might demonstrate, or a broadcaster running candidate ads that they are required to carry. Now, each category has its own liability rules. So, for example, for publishers, publishers are basically liable for material they republish the same way they were liable for their own speech. A newspaper could be sued for libel in a letter to the editor, for instance. In practice, there was some difference between liability for a third party's speech and for the company's own, especially after the Supreme Court required a showing of negligence for many libel cases. Uh, and also knowledge of the falsehood for some instances, but not all. And a newspaper would be more likely to uh, have the culpable mental state for the words uh, of its own employees, but still publishers were pretty broadly liable and had to be careful in choosing what to publish. And... Distributors were liable on what we might call a notice and takedown model. And so a bookstore, for instance, wasn't expected to have vetted every book on its shelves the way that a newspaper is expected to vet the letters that it publishes. But once it learns that a specific book uh, includes some specific likely libelous material, uh, it could be liable if it didn't remove the book from its shelves once it found out. And finally, platforms are simply not liable at all. For instance, even if a phone company learned that an answering machine had a libelous outgoing message, and that's actually from a real case known as Anderson v. New York Telephone Company in 1974, um, and did nothing to cancel the owner's phone service, it could not be sued for libel. Likewise, a city couldn't be liable for defamatory material on signs as someone carried on a city sidewalk even though, interestingly enough, a bar could be liable if, uh, if it learned of some liable uh, material that someone had graffitied onto the wall of a stall or something like that. And uh, according to a case known as Farmers Union v. Uh, WDAY in 1959, uh, a city could not be liable, or no, excuse me, I'm sorry, a broadcaster, a broadcaster couldn't be liable for defamatory material in a candidate ad. So categorical immunity for platforms was thus well known to American law, and indeed, New York's High Court had adopted it in 1999 for email systems apart from Section 230, uh, and this comes from the New York Superior Court case of Lonnie v. Prodigy Services in 1999. Um, uh, but the general pre Pre-230 tradition was that platforms were entities that didn't screen the material posted on them and indeed were generally, except in cases such as Lunny, legally forbidden from screening such materials. Phone companies are common carriers. Cities are generally barred uh, by the First Amendment from controlling what demonstrators say. 
and federal law requires broadcasters to carry candidates' ads unedited. Now, publishers were free to choose what third-party work to include in their publications and were fully liable for that work. Distributors were free to choose what third-party work to put on their shelves or to remove from their shelves and were immune until they were notified of such, that such work was libelous in nature. And platforms were not free to choose and therefore were immune, period. Now, enter the internet uh, in the early 1900s. Users started speaking uh, on online bulletin boards such as America Online, CompuServe, Prodigy, and the like, and of course, started libeling each other because that's what people do. And this led to two early decisions. Uh, there's Cubby v. CompuServe in 1991 and Stratton Oakmont Incorporated versus Prodigy Services in 1995. Now, Cubby held that the internet service providers such as CompuServe were entitled to be treated as distributors and not publishers. And Stratton Oakmont held that only service providers were, uh, only service providers that exercised no editorial control, such as CompuServe, over publicly posted materials would get distributor treatment and service providers that exercise some editorial control, such as Prodigy, for instance, by removing vulgarities would be treated as a publisher. And neither considered the possibility that an ISP uh, could actually be neither a publisher nor a distributor, but a categorically immune platform, uh, perhaps because at the time, only entities that had a legal obligation not to edit were treated as platforms. Uh, and the conclusion in Stratton Oakmont, the prodigy was a publisher because it, quote, actively utilized technology and manpower to delete notes from its computer bulletin board on the basis of offensiveness and bad taste, end quote, is inconsistent with the fact that distributors such as bookstores and libraries have always had the power to select what to distribute or to stop distributing without losing the limited protection uh, that distributor liability offers. But whether or not those two decisions were sound under existing legal principles, they gave service providers strong incentive to restrict speech in their chat rooms and other public-facing portions of their service. If they were to try to block or remove vulgarity, pornography, or even material that uh, they were persuaded was libelous or threatening, they would lose their protection as a distributor and would become potentially strictly liable for materials their users posted. At the time, that looked like it would be ruinous for many service providers. Uh, perhaps for all, I, I suppose, but the unimaginably wealthy uh, will, sure, uh, will surely, you know, dominate forever, uh, or at least that's how the argument goes, although I think uh, the downfall of America Online would uh, refute that strongly. But anyways, this was also a time when many people were worried about the internet chiefly because of pornography and its accessibility to children. And this is what led Congress to the Communications Decency Act of 1996, which tried to limit online porn. But the court struck that down in Reno v. ACLU in 1997, and part of the act of the Communications Decency Act 
specifically 47 USC Section 230, which basically immunizes all internet service and content providers and platforms from liability for their user speech, whether or not they blocked or removed certain kinds of speech, remained good law. Congress then deliberately provided platform immunity to entities that, unlike traditional platforms, could and did select what user content to keep up. It did so precisely to encourage platforms to block or remove certain speech without actually requiring them to do so by removing a disincentive, that is to say the loss of immunity, that would have otherwise come from such selectivity. And it gave them this flexibility regardless of how the platform exercised this function. And Congress deliberately imposed platform liability, that is to say categorical immunity, rather than distributor liability, which is a notice and takedown immunity. And uh, for copyright claims, it retained uh, distributor liability, uh, although I am oversimplifying a bit here, but uh, that part was soon codified in 17 U.S.C. Section 512, also known as the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998, which states, if you notify someone like Google, for instance, that some video posted on YouTube infringes copyright, Google gen will generally take it down. And if it doesn't, you can then sue Google for copyright infringement. But this is not so for libel. So what do we make of all this? I will have a few observations. First, under current law, Twitter, Facebook, and the like are immune as platforms regardless of whether they edit, including edit in a politicized way. Like it or not, this was a deliberate decision by Congress. You might prefer and quote, if you restrict your user's speech, you become liable for speech you allow model. But indeed, that was the model accepted by the court in Stratton Oakmont, but Congress rejected that model, and that rejection stands so long as 230 remains in its current form. Uh, now, second, Section 230 does indeed change traditional legal principles in some measure, but not by that much. It is true, Twitter is immune from liability for its users' posts, and a print newspaper is not immune from liability for letters to the editor, but the closest analogy to Twitter is not a newspaper, which prints only a few hundred third-party letters to the editor every day, uh, but either uh, much more similar to either a bookstore uh, or library, which has millions of third-party words, which cannot be expected to be screened out from the outset, or something more like a phone company or email service. So Twitter is essentially like the bookstore or library in that it runs third-party material without a human reading it carefully and reserves the right to remove such material, just as a bookstore can refuse to sell a particular book, whether because it's vulgar or unreliable or politically offensive or for any other reason whatsoever. Now, Twitter is like a phone company or email service in that it handles a vast range of materials, much more than even a typical bookstore or library, and generally keeps up virtually all of it, though it isn't legally obligated to do so the way a phone company would be. 
And Section 230 is thus a broadening of the platform category to include entities that might otherwise have been considered distributors. And one more takeaway. Of course, Section 230 could be amended, uh, whether to impose publisher liability, in which case many sites, uh, including my own, would have to uh, regretfully close down their comment section, or distributors under a notice and takedown liability, which would impose a lesser burden but still create pressure to remove material, especially when takedown demands come from really the more wealthy, litigious people and institutions in our society. And it could be amended to impose distributor liability for sites that restrict user speech in some situations and retain platform liability for sites that don't restrict at all. Now, I do hope to get back here uh, some more in a few days uh, about these options and how they could possibly play out. Uh, but for now, um, well, and I also hope to uh, blog some more about uh, the detailing of some of the specific wording of Section 230. Uh, but anyways, for now, I hope this gives a good uh, general perspective on the traditional common law rules and the way Section 230 amended those rules. So, uh, now that we have a legal framework uh, established, I can answer a question you may well have been asking yourself since the start. Who the fuck is Senator Ron Wyden? Why should I care? And what does he have to do with this? Well, Ron Wyden is a senator from Oregon. Uh, he's held his seat since 1996. He is a Progressive Democrat, but interesting one with a real libertarian streak to him, uh, especially in relation to internet privacy. Uh, and he largely wrote Section 230. Uh, and so I'm bringing him up because I have an article uh, down in the description that will be linked that is an interview that Ron Wyden gave to Reason Magazine very recently, uh, talking about people's political misapplications that defy any reasonable reading of this law. So if you or someone else you know isn't persuaded by my more formalistic textualist construction as I have been laying out here, uh, I would highly recommend you go read the interview with Ron Wyden. He explains it very well, uh, and he's a really interesting guy. And if nothing else, you should love him for being the guy whose concise questioning of James Clapper about the degree to which the NSA is illegally spying on us uh, left Clapper uncomfortably squirming in his chair before committing outright perjury on live TV, uh, you know, and really for all time on the record. But the main point he is trying to make can be summed up uh, in this quote uh, delivered recently by him from the floor of the Senate. Nothing in Section 230 shields companies for making illegal posts or from violations of federal criminal law. CDA 230, which is the uh, Communications Decency Act, Section 230, CDA 230 lets private companies take down inappropriate third-party posts without incurring liability. It's designed to protect companies from floods of lawsuits, the sorts that kill innovation in its infancy. Republicans used to fight tooth and nail for these perfections, but these days, Trump's Republican Party seemed to believe that lawyers and bureaucrats should tell private companies how to make clearly private business decisions. 
and the drive by Republicans to eliminate the autonomy of large private firms is extremely disturbing, end quote. So like I said, if you want to know more about Ron Wyden and Section 230, I will have links down in the description to the interview I'm kind of talking about and other, other good material too that will be worth checking out. Just various links to various sites uh, talking about various aspects of this topic. So uh, really, I have um, found that what, what is so compelling about Ron Wyden is that his explanation of what this law means at least what's been uh, interesting to me is is that he has been incredibly consistent about this. And as I have been looking into this, this is what he was saying about the law from day one. I mean, this is what he said back in 1996 when the law was overwhelmingly passed. So this is how he felt back when the law was popular. This is how he feels now when it's unpopular. And so I appreciate that kind of consistency. That's not something you get from uh, politicians today. So I would like to, uh, I guess, kind of finish here by uh, really addressing some of the some of the more common and more vexing uh, lies that we hear from politicians currently talking about Section Two Thirty. So one is that. Uh, Big tech currently enjoys protections as a platform instead of a publisher that if they do anything to moderate content that automatically makes them a publisher and they lose their protection as a platform. Now, that is not only a conclusion totally foreign to an explicit reading of the law, I can't even imagine some creative extrapolation of any aspect of that law that could even hint at that conclusion whatsoever. Another one is that uh, social media, as it exists now, has made itself a public utility or a common carrier. Well, common carrier is defined by 47 U.S.C. section 153, subsection 11, as uh, meaning any person engaged as a common carrier for hire in interstate or foreign communications by wire or radio or interstate or foreign radio transmissions of energy, except where references made to common carriers not subject to this chapter, but a person engaged in radio broadcasting shall not, insofar as such person is so engaged, be deemed a common carrier. And its very definition precludes application to social media of the term common carrier, since social media sites uh, would be the equivalent of a radio broadcaster, which this law specifically rejects as a common carrier. Now, furthermore, public utility uh, is defined uh, by uh, 18 CFR, as Code of Federal Regulations, 18 CFR section 46.2, subsection A, as a public utility. Uh, it, it, a public utility is an entity that provides goods or services to the general public, Public utilities must include common carriers as well as corporations that provide electricity, electricity, gas, water, heat, and television cable service. Now, in some contexts, the term public utility may be defined to include only private entities that provide such goods or services. For example, when defining the regulatory purview of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the FERC, 
Congress excluded governmental entities such as cities, counties, local irrigation districts, and state and federal agencies. Instead, FERC has primary authority over the principally private-owned businesses, commonly referred to as investor-owned utilities or regulated utilities. So, the closest thing to an internet version of a public utility would be an ISP. But Twitter does not become an ISP because they have a website any more than they become a telephone company for getting a company telephone number. Social media sites are a destination, not the service required to access the destination. And it doesn't matter if they become especially popular destinations that doesn't fundamentally change the nature of what they do. Twitter will always be a destination and it will never be a service to reach a destination. Social media is a website, not the service that you require to connect to all websites. Next, the idea that Section 230's protections require you to act as a neutral party to be considered a platform. But this public uh, political neutrality standard is just entirely made up. Their common carrier argument is at least a real thing that they merely really grossly misapply uh, the concept of a common carrier when they talk about it that way. But the Section 230 has anything to do with political neutrality uh, is not even a false claim that could be reached through some kind of misunderstanding of a like such as they do with common carrier. Uh, it just there's absolutely nothing that could possibly suggest that that was what 230 was meant in any way to do. And I will be returning to that a little more here uh, at the end of the article or at the end of this video, I should say. Now, another point that you often hear uh, from conservatives recently is that Clarence Thomas says social media are common carriers and wants to bring a court case so he and the court can reach this pre-decided conclusion. Which right there should be enough to tell you it's bullshit because the idea that Clarence Thomas would say that we have a pre-decided you know, decided conclusion and I want to, you know, anyways, that's neither here nor there, but... Now, specifically, actually, Clarence Thomas merely said that because the way this disagreement is splitting groups of people who are arguing about whether social media is a common carrier, that he believes this is a problem that should be brought before the court's attention, that the federal judiciary is the right place to settle this dispute. Now, precisely what Thomas said uh, in his recent uh, dissent to a denial of cert uh, that uh, specifically addressed this. He said, Today's digital platforms provide avenues for historically unprecedented amounts of speech, including speech by government actors. Also unprecedented, however, is the concentrated control of so much speech in the hands of a few private parties. We will soon have no choice but to address how our legal doctrines apply to highly concentrated privately owned information infrastructure, such as a digital platform. And I will have a link down in the description to uh, a copy of that full dissent from denial of cert, so you can look it up and read the whole thing for yourself if you want, although that's really the only part that directly 
applies to this aspect of Section 230, but it's an interesting read all the same. Now, another bullshit talking point is that Section 230 is some kind of blanket immunity that was gifted on big tech companies that is some kind of, in the words of Josh Hawley, big cushy giveaway. Actually, the truth is that Josh Hawley is just a big government Republican who believes that free speech, free association, and private property rights aren't rights, but government-granted privileges. This is the only explanation of how Hawley could have been on the right side of the case of Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission in 2018, because he is a religious bigot who thinks that free speech, free association, and private property rights are privileges that he, as government, can dole out to people whose views align with his own and that can, he can revoke from everyone who doesn't buy into his soft tyranny. And this is actually why, in an odd sense, I can appreciate Joe Biden in that Joe Biden believes he knows how to run your life better than you do, and he is not afraid to say as much. He doesn't get mealy mouth when it comes to Joe Biden's commitment to using state violence against people uh, he pleases if that's what it takes to gain compliance with his standards. People like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz use the language of liberty while believing in the same right to wield state violence against anyone not living the way that Hawley or Cruz have decided we should live. Now, it takes a uniquely immoral character for someone to decide that they don't want the government to dictate what they can or cannot say, but are okay with using the state's monopoly on force to crack down on companies who use their private property in a way that conservatives don't approve of. After all, what does free speech even mean if not a right to speak free from violence? That nobody can hurt you or destroy your property because they didn't like what you had to say. Yet, that's the very thing that these big government conservatives like Josh Hawley, believe that they have a right to do. Now, I do not like the path that these social media companies are taking with moderating user content, but you either believe in private property rights or you don't. You cannot say that you believe in individual liberty and private property rights unless you believe in others having the right to use their property in ways you don't approve of. Now, of course, the right to speak is part of living in a free society. It's a very important part of living in a free society. But boycotts, cancel culture, social stigmatization, property rights, free association, and free markets are all also part of living in a free society. Now, the sad thing is that those who be, claim to be fighting for free speech, people like Josh Hawley, have made the topic a cliché. They carry on claiming to uh, invoke the principles of liberty when what they are in fact doing is rather insidiously rejecting them. Well, that is going to do it for me here today on Categorical Imperatives. I do hope that you enjoyed the show. Leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought about it. Uh, and then if you like the video... Uh, go ahead and hit the thumbs up button. Uh, if you didn't like it, hit the thumbs down button, I guess. Um, 
And yeah, I would remind you too, if you want to support the show, uh, there's links to Patreon and all that stuff down below. You can go do that. And if you're not able to do that, again, that's totally cool. Uh, but what I would ask is just think of one person who you know, who you think would also enjoy this particular episode and just pass this along to them. And if you would help me grow the channel that way, I would be truly, truly grateful for your help. So until next time, this has been me, uh, Locky and Liberal, for Categorical Imperatives, talking about Section 230. And as always, Delenda S. Carthago.